0: Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we're enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. My name is Alex, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be speaking today on the subject of, of joy, and it's the joy that we see the Magi expressing as they come and encounter the child Jesus. And so if you're new here and have uh, questions maybe about redemption or even Jesus and the gospel, if you would just fill out that Connect card and drop it in the box on the way out in the lobby today, and we'll be happy to follow up with you right away. So again, thank you so much for taking time to be with us here and continue our journey through the Advent season. The word advent. Uh, if you don't know, if you didn't grow up in church, or that might be a new word to you, it means coming or arrival. So we're celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, during this time of stillness, waiting for Christmas Day, uh, we learn to train our hearts to await the second coming, the second arrival of the Lord Jesus. And so, uh, I want to just take a few minutes and walk through Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So, if you have your Bible or scroll on an app, it'll it'll be on the screen as well behind me. Uh, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, we're honing in on the joyous response of the magi, the wise men, uh, when they encounter the child Jesus. And So, here's kind of the outline of where we're going today, just to let you know, kind of where we're headed. First, uh, we're going to look at some of the biblical and historical context of who wrote this, Matthew, why did he write it, and why did he arrange it in this way, and then also just look at the context, the, in the first century, what, what was going on politically that intensifies what's written here in Matthew's gospel. So we'll do biblical historical context, do one piece of a the theological implication looking at some of the theology of Matthew's gospel, and then we'll just walk through the passage seeking to apply it the best we can. So uh, just so you know, this, this particular passage uh, is, is complicated. Uh, it, it's confusing for a number of reasons. Uh, magi in the Old Testament, God says, have nothing to do with sorcerers, diviners, astrology, and so on. Cultic, pagan, Babylonian religion... All of a sudden, these guys show up, and now here they are worshiping the Son of God. So, needless to say, it took some time to do some studying this week, so I'm going to try not to confuse you. and. Uh make a train wreck out of this, but to be as faithful and as clear as I can to the Scripture. At the same time, my job as a pastor is not to always answer every single question under the sun, but to try to just exposit the Scripture, show what we can learn from the Scripture to the best of our ability, and then be conformed in the image of Jesus. So pray with me once more, and then we'll just jump right in. Uh, Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, and we ask... For you to help us by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, would you help me now to faithfully and truthfully and passionately proclaim your word? Uh, Our desire today is not to hear from myself or anyone else, but in this hour, we really want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through the word you inspired? And would you comfort your people? And would you give us the joy that ought to accompany worshipers of Jesus? Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for the Advent season. We pray this again in your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, so here's just a few things about the historical context. I'll tell you just a few things. First, uh, this is the only place in scripture where this scene appears. Matthew and Luke's Gospel are the only two Gospels that tell you about the virgin birth of Jesus and give you his genealogy. Mark doesn't do it, John doesn't do it, and those are for other reasons, and when you look in the Gospels, this is the only place. So it's only found here in Matthew. And a little bit about Matthew. First, in the first century, and the first several centuries actually, nobody disputed the authorship of Matthew's Gospel. Everybody, everybody across the globe unanimously agreed that Matthew, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, actually put pen to paper and wrote this Gospel. He wrote this Gospel in roughly just before 70 AD, which means that he pens this Gospel prior to the temple being destroyed in Jerusalem. Like, why is that important? Because Jesus over and over again predicts the falling of the temple in Jerusalem. Matthew puts pen to the paper saying this is going to happen. Jesus predicted it, and lo and behold, it did, in fact, happen. Matthew, like I said, was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He was not uh, found in the temple worshiping God, but rather he, when Jesus called him, rather he was working as a tax collector. He was hired by Rome to overtax his own people, and thus he was despised in the eyes of every Jew. That is, he works for Rome. He oppresses his people. He works for the traitors, the bad guys, so on. Jesus comes to Matthew, calls Matthew, get up, leave your place of employment, renounce everything, come follow me, Matthew does so. Matthew pens this gospel. A couple other details about Matthew that's important. Matthew, he's the only gospel writer to mention the temple tax, which would be interesting because Matthew was formerly a tax collector. He's also uh, the only gospel writer that won't go into any details about Jewish customs, festivals, ceremonies, sacrifices, and so on. Like, why is that? Why doesn't Matthew explain things? regarding the Jewish faith? Well, because Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews about the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled Jewish prophecy and so on. So Matthew doesn't go into explaining anything about Israel's customs, Israel's history, and so on. He just talks as though they were up to speed. It would be like the same reason why i don't need to explain to anybody in here what amazon is in seattle today like yeah we got it we know what amazon is and starbucks and boeing and costco and so on so that's why matthew doesn't go into a whole lot of detail surrounding jewish customs whereas other gospel writers will so there's a little bit uh, about matthew is very much so a jew writing to jews about the jewish jesus who fulfilled jewish prophecy also, if you just go and, like I mentioned a moment ago, Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, the only two that mention the virgin birth and, and the genealogies of Jesus, if you go and compare those, you might come up and go, oh my gosh, these don't line up at all. The Bible's a joke and it's all foiling and there's, there's contradictions and so on. If you just look at Luke's genealogy, it doesn't match Matthew's. Like, oh, what happened? Did Matthew screw it up? Like. No When you read the genealogies Luke will trace it all the way back to Adam In the Garden of Eden Because Luke emphasizes Jesus being Savior of the world Who does Matthew trace his genealogy back to? Father Abraham Why is he tracing it back to Father Abraham? Abraham, the first Jew And what did God promise to the first Jew? Genesis 12 Through you, Abraham I'm going to bring the nations in Now we see the birth of Jesus. And who shows up? The nations are coming to worship Jesus. All this is done with intentionality and with design. Isn't that cool? Yeah, okay, cool. So where do you learn that stuff? Study Bible. You can get a study Bible. If you need a study Bible, I'll give you one. All right, so there's the genealogies, little differences there. Um, And then also, let me tell you just a little bit about the historical context. One thing, um, our nativity scenes... I know, we get it wrong. Um, they look great, but they're, they're just a little off. Here's what I mean. Your average nativity scene, you've got Jesus and Joseph and Mary so far so good. Animals, still good. Shepherds, great. Magi at the nativity scene, probably not. The reason being is that Jesus, at the time of the visit of the Magi, is about one to probably two years of age. Like why do we think that? Well, one, uh, they are no longer found in the manger. Joseph has now moved his family out of the manger scene and is relocated and got a home. Second thing is that, as you know in the passage that follows, King Herod that calls for the infanticide, the killing of all male children, what was the age limit? Two and under. So the idea is that the king that had been born is probably at least two years of age. So these magi that have been traveling to see Jesus, they come from the land of Babylon, far off in the east, following a star. And they've probably been traveling, scholars speculate, upwards one to even two years following this star to find an encounter and express joy surrounding this birth of the king of the Jews. So let me tell you a tiny bit about Herod. In case he didn't know about the infanticide. This was completely uh, in, in, in conjunction with his character that preceded this, this awful event. Uh, so let me tell you a little about Herod. First, he was a Roman governor, and he was called King of the Jews. He was beneath Rome. He was not the emperor of Rome. He was, he was a king, though, over this particular province. Herod was King of the Jews. He was actually uh, in charge of the King of the Jews. He was held as King of the Jews from 37 BC to four years BC. In fact, there's so much about Herod in history. There's actually more written about King Herod historically than Julius Caesar or... Um, Alexander the Great, which is hard to believe being that Alexander conquered the entire Roman Empire, but there's more actually written about Herod than anybody else. Pretty mind-blowing. Herod, uh, was a psychopath. And here's a few things you'll hear about this man. But before I tell you how crazy he was, I'll tell you how successful he was. One, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem after it was destroyed, uh, in, uh, the first destruction of the temple was in 586 BC. But he rebuilt the temple. He founded Caesarea, where you see Jesus doing a lot of his ministry. He built that city. Uh, he did a whole facelift over the city of Jerusalem. He built the famous Hippodrome. If you've seen any old archaeological digs, Herod built this Hippodrome, this stadium. And he managed to keep peace between both Jerusalem and Rome, which is, uh, wasn't common in ancient Rome, these two empires collided all the time. But he managed to do it, so he's quite successful. At the same time, his home life was completely a disaster. He had 10 wives, and there were many princes born to these wives. And all of these princes seemed to be scheming to take the throne from their father, Herod. Uh, He had three of his sons put to death because they, he found out that they were conspiring to take him out and take the throne. So he had his own sons put to death. He had his favorite wife put to death. He had a couple of his mothers in laws put to death. Um, he invited a high priest down. There's one occasion where he invites this high priest down for a game of water polo. It gets out of hand, and Herod just drowned the guy in, in a water polo match. I mean, this guy was crazy, an absolute psychotic murderer. He killed cousins. And uncles, uh, Augustus even said about him, "It'd be you're better off being Herod's pig than his son." Going like, if you're in his family, you, the likelihood of you, lo- you losing your head is pretty high. So when you come on the scene and you now see this infanticide, this kill all children under the age of two, that's completely in in his character to do something like that. So there's a little bit about Herod. In fact. Right before Herod died, Herod knew, he knew that no one would mourn his death when he died. So what did Herod do? He got uh, hundreds of Jewish leaders brought into the Hippodrome and executed them right before his death. Why? So that the city would be filled with tears on the day that Herod dies. He's that guy. Wow. Herod heard about a king of the Jews that was born. So there's a little bit of the historical context. A couple of the things about Matthew you just got to know, and I can't go into any of it, but I'll just mention this. Matthew is over and over again teaching us that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the newer and greater Moses. So I just compare Jesus and Moses very quickly. Moses goes up a mountain, comes down with what? The law. Five books. Moses comes down with the law. Jesus goes up a mountain, comes down with what? The new law. Jews and Moses wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus suffers for 40 days in fasting. Moses is glowing after his encounter with God. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. Uh, There's five books of the law. Like I mentioned, Matthew has five teaching discourses. Like on and on, Matthew's like being overtly Jewish. Like any Jewish reader would be like, oh my gosh, this is the new, truer, and greater Moses. And of course, at the end of the gospel, what do you have? Moses gave you this covenant, I establish a new covenant in my blood. So there's just a a little bit about some of the themes of Matthew. Okay, so now let's just do the text. Here you go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So uh, it says he's born in Bethlehem, but they go to Jerusalem. Like, what happened there? Are they wrong? Well, they were actually really close. Let me show you a map real quick maps are fun in the back of your Bible. So right down here in the southern kingdom of Judea, you'll see right here in the south, well in the middle of the country, you've got Bethlehem and just to the north uh, is Jerusalem. It's only about five miles. They've been journeying for thousands of miles across the, the empire and they get here and they're about five miles away from where Jesus was born. So who are the wise men? Uh, we don't know exactly how many in our t- typical nativity scene, because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We tend to think, oh, maybe there's one gift per guy. But we really don't know how many of these wise men are. And we, we don't know a whole lot about them. We don't know their names. We don't know about their families. But we do know that they're Babylonians. They're part of a cultic religion. They're into some form of astrology. They're following a star, but they didn't grow up in Israel, they didn't have the promises of God, the covenants of God, they didn't have the law of God, they weren't, they they were part of the outsiders, the Gentiles. These men show up unexpectedly, saying, In Jerusalem, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they arrive in the city of Jerusalem, asking for the king of the Jews. And what drew them there? It was a star. And why would they do this? Well, one, a typical Babylonian religion, when they would see a new star or planet in the sky, they would tend to think something like somebody famous, somebody of influence, somebody of power has been born. This was part of their theological makeup. So there's one. Two... Uh, you've got to remember your Old Testament history, the Jews had actually lived in Babylon for hundreds of years when they were carried off into captivity. And so their familiarity, a Babylonian's familiarity with the Jewish Old Testament, the likelihood is fairly high. It doesn't mean they followed Yahweh. It doesn't mean they believed every promise of God or everything about Abraham. But it does mean that they know some of this story. And these guys in particular are now looking for a star. And they, they now see this star and they conclude the king of the Jews has been born like where would that is that mentioned in the old testament and actually it is numbers 24 17 says this a star will come out of jacob and a scepter will rise out of israel these men read their old testament or at least were familiar enough with it see this star and in faith start making this journey this group of men journey hundreds and even thousands of miles to worship Jesus. And what do they know about this Old Testament? What did it say, that, who, this, who this Jesus would be? He would reign on the throne of David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So they're coming in, and they follow this unique star. And they start asking specifically for the king. Where's the king of the Jews that's been born? So given Herod's insanity, you can see why the next verse would say, Herod was troubled. Herod killed a guy in water polo. Like, this is, this is not good. This, and, and because of, we know that it's probably more than just three men because of the uproar that they start in the city. That if it's one guy that shows up and asks a weird question, you can dismiss it. But when there's a number of people showing up and calling about the king to be worshiped, begins a uproar. And so if you start like going and like digging around and studying, you'll get an like sometimes commentators like excel in missing the point. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Maybe you've been to school and you've, you've seen this happen in your real life. Like they get obsessed over a detail and it will go on for page after page after page after page going, well, there's this speculation in this way. So what, what was the star? What was the star? Well, the star was uh, maybe it was a comet. And then they go into all the details. Well, no, that star couldn't have been there at this time, but maybe it it was a comet, maybe it was a supernova, maybe it was a planet, planets aligning, like an on and on and on they go on about. What star exactly was it? Listen, that was not the point to figure out precisely what star is in the sky. Rather, the point was to get to Jesus And to worship Jesus, asking about what star is like asking, did the giraffe bump its head on the way under the ark? It's just like, I don't, that's not the point. That's just not the, it's just not the, not the thing. Worship is the point. So they show up, they ask where the king is born. When Herod, the king, Matthew, make sure you know he's the king in their minds. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Like all of Jerusalem? That's Matthew's way of usually speaking of Jewish leadership. So the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the chief priests, these are the people that tend to represent all of Jerusalem, is upset. And it wouldn't be too far of a stretch either to go, well, it could be on even the leadership of religious community it could just be everybody's upset because if herod's upset we're upset if harry gets upset the whole city could go under right so the entire city is upset or literally the word there is, is is shaken up And dissembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. So now Herod knows, the word Christ hasn't been used yet, but Herod knows about this Christ figure. When you and I hear the word Christ, we're 2,000 years removed from the Lord Jesus resurrecting and ascended. The word Christ to us has a very much so a spiritual meaning. We're part of the covenant of God. He fulfilled the Old Testament, right? He's the anointed son of God, the Christ. But in the first century, the word Christ also carried with it connotations of being a political ruler who would come on the scene and establish a kingdom that would actually smash Rome. Herod's going, oh my gosh, who's been born? The Christ? He's the one that's going to do what? Put Rome back in its place and this king will reign? So Herod's asking, where's this Christ to be born? And they told him, they open up their Old Testaments and they say from Micah 5, verse 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they tell him, here's what the Bible says. The Old Testament said he was going to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. And he was. Remember last week, we had the census that was called by by, uh, Quirinius, the census in which every man had to go and be registered in the hometown in which he grew up, well, God rerouted the entire <laughs> empire so that Jesus would be born precisely where the prophecy says. So, he's born in Bethlehem. Now, if he would have asked who was to be born in Bethlehem, they would have read the rest of Micah chapter 5. But the, all they asked was, where? Where is he going to be born? You know, the rest of Micah chapter five, the, the next verse says this, If he we said, well, who's going to be born in Bethlehem? If they just should have asked that, they would have got this answer. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, who, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They would have clued in and gone, oh, the one that'd be born in Israel, uh, though he has a birthday right here, He's from beyond. He's from eternity past. It's You would have leaned into what you get in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was facing towards God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They would have got into all that logos theology, all this stuff about the eternality of God, the eternality of the Trinity. They would have got into all of that, but they, they didn't ask that question. They asked just where, and so they get the simple answer, Bethlehem, a small, small, more or less insignificant town. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child for when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So now Herod uses these men who are out to go worship Jesus. He says, yeah, yeah, I want to join you. I'd love to go worship Jesus. Of course, we know he's not actually going to seek out to worship the Son of God, but the wise men didn't know that. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest, or literally, the the Greek there is, uh, having come and taken its stand over the place where the child was. That's Matthew's way of God telling the stars where to stand. So the star comes and takes its stand, don't move. So the star goes, stands where it's told. They come to the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, this is awesome. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm like, why? Why? Well, they're standing outside of the house where the son of God had been born. The the king, the one that had been prophesied, the one through whom Abraham, right, will bless all the nations, the one that Matthew said, you'll name him Jesus, he'll save his people from their sins. They're standing outside the house. And listen, church, these are the first Gentiles that get to worship Jesus. Do you know how Gentiles got to worship Jesus in the Old Testament, or worship God in the Old Testament? It wasn't like this. David said, you know, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Why? Well, he's the king, David. He can go anywhere he wants. There's no outer court, inner court, and and so on, into the holy of holies. No, no, no. Gentiles, you're on the way out, way back there, behind a screen, far removed, far reserved. These now pagan men cultic astrologers coming from the east they get to the residence the very address standing outside the front door knowing inside the house is the very son of god with his mother mary one to two years old crawling around in the floor and they're overwhelmed with joy. And Matthew repeats it, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like they, these, he's trying to communicate that these men, felt an overwhelming happiness, an overwhelming satisfaction, an overwhelming sense of purpose and meaning and significance was all inside that house. We can't go inside the temple courts, but now all of a sudden we get to go beyond the temple court and we're going to go and behold the very temple of God? We're not just following a star anymore. There's the light of the world. We're not eating manna in the wilderness. We're, here's the bread of heaven that's come down. Here's the true vine. Here's the way, the truth, and the life. All these things that have been spoken of, coming to this moment, these men are overwhelmed. The gospel's true. God wasn't lying when He said He was going to crush the serpent of the of the crush the head of the serpent. And he what didn't lie to Abraham? He didn't lie to Moses or Noah or David or Solomon or any of the prophets that foretold the coming of Jesus. They read their old testament they glean enough of it they follow in faith they're outside the door and jesus is inside this is great news great joy they're going god's not lying he did send his son the king has been born can you imagine being in that moment (laughs) dude Gary's like yeah dude yes that moment outside the house when here he is I get to go in and I get to put my I get to open my eyes, I'm gonna open this door and I'm gonna see Mary and Jesus. (sighs) Wow, it's just unbelievable. And so they're overcome with this joy, this joyous response. What would elicit that kind of a joyous, celebratory response over a toddler? They must have known something about who that Savior would be. And so they're overcome with joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So they walk in. They see Mary and they see Jesus and they fell down and worshiped him. That's unbelievable. You've got maybe one, maybe two years old Jesus and these astrologers, these men from Babylon have traveled thousands of miles. They're outside the house jumping up and down. I mean, you've got to know. They didn't just stand there like, this is going to be kind of neat. This might be cool. I mean, you know. We're gonna, it's like you're standing outside, going to go see a new movie. Like, this, this could be cool. I read a good thing. Rotten Tomatoes had, you know, it got up 89, but I'm going to waste my $14 and try it anyway and see how, how it goes. They weren't doing that. They were jumping up and down. We've traveled we're here exceeding joy they come in the house they see jesus and they're overwhelmed by the toddler jesus and they fall down in worship isn't this the best These guys that were on the outside, these guys that were always getting smashed in the Old Testament, these guys that are so clearly not a part of the covenant of God that deserve the just wrath of God, just like me, just like you. We're in Seattle. We didn't grow up obeying Moses, not eating pork and all that. Like, wait, what? But these men are now in the very presence of God's own son, and they do what the angels do. They just drop. I mean, I know this looks ridiculous, and I don't care. Like, they drop prostrate on their face, and they worship Jesus. Some commentators I read this week will say things like, well, the word worship here doesn't mean much. It just is more like they they pay homage. Like, ah, it's an important person in here, and we should stand when he walks in the room. This is not that. They got rid of everything, followed a star across the globe, and they're exceedingly rejoiced. It's real worship. Have you been there in your life? With what real worship is, I'm not talking about just like an emotional experience. This is not emotional-ism. Hillsong wasn't there or whatever to like play a great guitar. Like, and that's not like bashing Hillsong. I actually like Hillsong. But like there, this wasn't one of these moments where it was all drummed up and everything just seemed like, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, they're walking a the house with a two-year-old and they're overwhelmed knowing the truth about who this two-year-old is. And they bow down and they worship their hearts out. Have you done that? Like, do you know what that, that experience is like? To enjoy Jesus. It's part of why our church exists. Enjoying Jesus and loving people and making disciples. Those aren't just like quippy little tagline things. This is a right response. If we know who Jesus is, you'll stop at nothing to get to him. Because what we enjoy is another way of saying is what we worship. These men see toddler Jesus, and they just fall down, and they worship. Do you know that if you're not a Christian today, you can give your life to Jesus, and you can follow in the steps of these Gentiles and worship? Do you know that today, as Christians, Gentiles here in Seattle... We're invited into that same heart posture toward Jesus to just enjoy him for who he is and all that he's done. I mean, there's Jesus, a two-year-old, hasn't even lifted a finger, hardly. (laughs) And he commands worship, and he deserves worship just in and of who he is, How ought we respond after Calvary, after Easter, Sunday, after his resurrection? We ought to be the people that enjoy and follow in step and go, yeah, I'm here to enjoy Jesus too. Jesus is enjoyable. So they fell down. They worshiped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So watch this. As they as they rise from worship of Jesus. By the way, they're they're not worshiping Mary. They worship him. They worship Jesus. As they rise, their worship then translates very practically. It's emotional. It's physical. And it's even financial. These wealthy magi they present gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They didn't come here to play games and play lip service and do all that. They, they then begin to give gifts to Jesus. And these, this gold and frankincense and myrrh, these were common travel, these were things that these men would have been traveling with. These are things that you would use in exchange over a long journey to pay for lodging and things like that. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were were more common. They're very, very expensive things, but it's it's a lot of cash. It's a lot of loot. And yet at the same time it's something they would have used in their journey along the way. And, you know, not coincidentally enough, but in the next scene Jesus is now having to be smuggled out of his country as a refugee. Don't miss that. Jesus was, in fact, a refugee. He was a refugee. He was a refugee. Please don't miss that. Jesus was smuggled out of his country, taken into, of all countries, where? Egypt, where his people were oppressed, where his people were murdered. And Jesus spent time in Egypt, smuggled there. How would they get there? through gold and frankincense and myrrh Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people these gifts were now to be used in a way of preserving the life of the savior and then of all things probably unknown to these probably unknown to these magi is that those gifts prophesied the story of the whole gospel. Gold. The king was born. Incense. Burns for divinity. Myrrh. Used in entombing Jesus' body. John chapter 19, verse 38. These men are giving to Jesus something that tells the entire gospel story. The king, the divine one, will die and triumph. They're telling the story through the very gifts that they lay at the feet of little Jesus. Worship demands everything. Worship is something that grips your heart. It is something that grips our emotions because it's gripped our minds and has convinced us that this is ultimate worship is something we physically do we physically get up we physically go somewhere we physically say some things we bow down sometimes we raise our hands sometimes we cry sometimes we shout sometimes we play songs some physically we physically worship our god they do that together and because it's worship of course giving was tied to that entire experience Listen, Jesus, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, even as a two-year-old. Jesus hardly needed anything in one sense. And yet, because of his humility, he brought himself so lowly that he himself became needy like we were and identified with the needy and then calls us as his people to now turn and be generous to the needy because as often as you do it to the least of these, you did it to me. And so, if we find our joy in him, we do what St. John tells us. We don't find his commandments to be burdensome. You have a savior that loves you, church. We do not serve a king, Herod. Our king died on a cross. This king of the Jews had this stapled above his head as he hung for our sins and he rose from the grave not only as king of the Jews but the king of us here today and everyone who would come after him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We want to follow you. Would you enable us by your Holy Spirit? Would you give us the joy as the fuel in the tank to bring about a right response to who you are and to all that you've done. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for rising from the grave. Thank you for teaching us how to live this life. Jesus, we revere you. We bow before you. We love you. Thank you for hearing our prayers today and thank you for meeting our deepest needs. We pray this in your good name. Amen.